Welcome to a JPEN podcast for the March 2014 issue of the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. My name is Kelly Tappenden. I'm the editor-in-chief of JPEN and professor of human nutrition at the University of Illinois. I'm joined today for a conversation on a paper entitled Intestinal Microbial Diversity and Perioperative Complications. The senior author of this paper is Dr. Daniel Teitelbaum, who is Professor of Pediatric Surgery at the University of Michigan Mott Children's Hospital. He is also President-Elect of the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, beginning his term as President in June 2014. Congratulations, Dr. Teitelbaum. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today to talk about this paper. I I think it's very important because we've known for a long time with a lot of work done in your lab and others that enteral nutrient deprivation is bad for the gut. You've shown that it leads to local mucosal inflammation and this pro-inflammatory response results in the loss of epithelial barrier function, atrophy of the intestine, but exactly what the underlying mechanisms have been unknown. Now, in these rodent models, you and others have identified a shift in the intestinal microbial community in rodents on parenteral nutrition. But it's been relatively unclear if this happens in humans. So tell us about about the work that you wanted to do. Yeah, so that's exactly right. We started looking at microbial communities in a mouse model of TPN several years ago. And what we found really got me changing uh, how I looked at what was happening with the intestine. If you think about it from a simplistic point of view, when we stop feeding a patient, be it a mouse or a human, we're not only depriving nutrients to the patient, but we're suddenly depriving nutrients to the vast number of microbial organisms that are residing in the GI tract, and they start starving too. Now, we can feed our patient by giving them parenteral nutrition, but the microbes within the gut are not being fed. And so very rapidly, within a week after we stop giving enteral nutrition, we see a very aggressive group of organisms suddenly showing up within the small and the large intestine. And these are gram-negative organisms, and they're very aggressive type organisms. Escherichia coli and Proteus expand. And favorable organisms that we call firmicutes actually start disappearing. So we asked ourselves, could these same types of changes be happening in humans that are enterally deprived? And being a surgeon, we're fortunate enough to have a fairly rich source of intestinal tissue that we've resected or removed from a number of our patients that were either on parenteral nutrition or receiving enteral nutrition. And we subjected this to what we call 454 pyrosequencing, where we're basically looking at the genetic 
fingerprint of the bacteria that are residing within the small intestine. Now, what we found was quite interesting because we found that the longer patients were residing uh, with nutrient deprivation, that the more deranged their bacterial communities became, such that we had a couple patients who were on for a very prolonged period of time, and they actually were developing a very abnormal microbial population, a dense amount of gram-negative organisms, and what we would say is a lack of microbial diversity. Now, the challenge that we've got is that this is a small study. And so I think we need to repeat this again with larger numbers of patients as we move forward. And then actually understanding if we can correlate these microbial changes to physiologic changes as well. Very interesting. Now, why would the gram-negative organisms that you speak about be able to flourish when the firmicutes cannot in that nutrient-deprived environment? So that's a great question and and really the next uh, challenge that our laboratory has. What we hypothesize is that the firmicutes are very dependent on a rich source of local complex carbohydrates, uh, such as you might derive from salad or green vegetables. Whereas gram-negative organisms, such as these proteobacteria, these gram-negative organisms, are very aggressive at gaining nutrients from a wide variety of sources, including sloughed epithelial cells from the lining, and really basically eating off of the uh, atrophine gut that's left within the intestine. We know these gram-negatives thrive on protein, more than a rich carbohydrate source. So it really has us approaching our next challenge in trying to understand what these organisms are utilizing for metabolites and how they survive over more favorable or beneficial organisms within the gut. Very interesting. So if we were to draw out a a mechanistic pathway, then you would puts the loss of bacterial diversity ahead of the atrophy wherein this altered microbiota is actually initiating the atrophy as opposed to the atrophy coming first? So what we're supposing, and and this is really just the first step in the human rung here, is that first we suddenly make this tremendous change within the environment by removing nutrient substrates from these microbial organisms. We probably kill off vast numbers of firmicutes and other very friable organisms within the GI tract, leaving a much more virulent and stronger population of gram-negative organisms. Now, if what we're seeing in the mouse is true in the humans, what we will see next is a market upregulation in toll-like receptors along the GI tract, and these gram-negative organisms will signal through these toll receptors, driving a pro-inflammatory response, producing a number of pro-inflammatory cytokines within the mucosa. And this pro-inflammatory response will secondarily lead to a breakdown in epithelial barrier function and an increased amount of intestinal epithelial apoptosis. Mm -hmm. 
So the whole question of what comes first is still a bit of a challenge, but we actually think that this is sort of the prevailing theory that our laboratory is driving right now. Very good. That's interesting. I want to ask you a methodology question. Please. You took tissue and then scraped it to look at mucosally associated bacteria, which I think is excellent because these are the organisms that are actually interacting with the human epithelium. Many other studies in the literature who have used the novel sequencing techniques that you have look at fecal samples. And I've always wondered what is the relevance of those downstream output samples compared to those right at the level of the mucosa. So I want to commend you for doing, you know, the mucosal-associated samples. But what do you think that the correlation is between the populations? Well, we're most intrigued by what we would say is host-microbe interactions. And as a matter of fact, I mean, that's we really just initiated a center here at our university called exactly that. I mean, the host-microbe interactions is where things start clicking mechanistically. There are actually distinct microbial population differences between those microbes that are associated with the mucosa of the gut compared to those microbes that are actually just a few millimeters away within the lumen of a small bowel. Exactly. And clearly those microbes are very distinct from the ones that end up in stool, which is what is typically studied in many clinical studies. So we're fortunate to have these really robust clinical samples to get at this particular work. And we do think that studying the mucosally associated bacteria is clearly the way to go. I agree. I think that's wonderful. Now tell me about the clinical application or impact of these data. I think what we really need to understand is <clears throat> we have two challenges in humans that are receiving enteral nutrition. And I think the first challenge is if we do enterally deprive the gut, then how we could either develop modalities to sustain a favorable microbial population, or if we cannot, how we can improve barrier function and prevent these more deleterious bacteria or, and other organisms from activating a pro-inflammatory response. The second challenge that we have is one they haven't not studied in humans yet, but what we've found is that when we acutely refeed a rodent, we actually, if you think about it, are feeding a very virulent population of organisms. So once we start animal feeds back again, we actually see that our microbial population does not immediately change back to normal. And we see an actual enhancement of the pro-inflammatory response to three or four times what it is in a TPN mouse. So I think the second challenge we've got is figuring out clever ways of appropriately feeding our patients when we initiate enteral feeds again. And it may dramatically change the types of nutrients that we would give our patients when we begin those feedings. If you think about it, then we're really not just refeeding our patient, but we want to start refeeding a favorable community of enteral microbes. Very nice. So with that in mind, are we at the point or in the near future, do you believe that there will be bedside diagnostic techniques for us to understand the microbial community that's present 
as opposed to, you know, 454 power sequencing, which clearly can't be done bedside. So I would say that, of course, a lot of our laboratory tests are not done bedside right now. We actually have the ability to do pyrosequencing techniques within a matter of 24 hours. And I think with that capability and that timeline actually getting even quicker as, as the years go through, I really would not be surprised in the next five years if we're pyrosequencing or using other high-throughput um, assessment of the uh, makeup of our patients' microbial populations as a uh, clinical test to help guide us in how we feed our patients and to try to figure out how we should be approaching trying to protect our patients that do have a deranged microbial population. That is both thought-provoking and exciting. Thank you, Dr. Teitelbaum, for your contribution to the March issue of JPEN, and I will look forward to reading additional work that comes from your lab. My pleasure. Thank you very much.